If you love the History Extra podcast and want to help us keep bringing you brilliant episodes, then please share it with a friend or a fellow history fan who you think might enjoy it. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Reveal. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. Fifty years ago, in 1972, a break-in at the Democratic National Committee headquarters in Washington, D.C. sparked a political conspiracy. It was a conspiracy that went on to end the presidency of Richard Nixon and became a byword for scandal. Yes, today we're talking about Watergate. Clifford Williamson, lecturer in modern British and American history at Bath Spa University, spoke to Matt Elton about the twists and turns of the Watergate scandal and its impact on the US in the decades afterwards. So, Cliff, we're talking today about the Watergate scandal, which um, happened 50 years ago this year and obviously was a fairly uh, major moment in American history. I wanted to start um, by perhaps setting up some of the context to what happened. Um, What was the political situation in the United States in the early 70s at the time when this story begins unfolding? Well, it's a time of conflict. It's a time of real polarisation. There is a real sense of division across a number of different areas of American life from issues relating to race relations. Of course, we're coming out of the civil rights era at the start of the 1970s, and the direction of travel for that is unclear. It's an era, of course, where the Vietnam War is still raging, although uh, Vietnamization, the Nixon policy from 1968, is reducing the American footprint in South uh, East Asia. It's a time, even down to things like there are kids going to the Supreme Court about being ordered to have their hair cut. That's the sort of level of division and the level of discourse that has taken place. You know, there are only two years earlier to the Watergate break-in, there was the Hard Hat riots where predominantly conservative-minded workers in New York City basically beat to a bloody pulp student protesters who hauled down an American flag in the centre of New York City. That's the that's the calibre, that's the temperature of the time, one of utter division and one where a lot of people seem to think that things would not get better unless the government cracked down hard on dissent. And Nixon obviously became president in 1969. To what extent was his tenure as president, especially in these early years, responsible for stoking this conflict? Or had he tried to sort of bring it under control, as you've just suggested? Well, there's a bit of there's conflicting evidence on this. On the one hand, there's no doubt that uh, Nixon's move towards yeah, so-called peace with honour had, at least to start off with, de-escalated the whole situation relating to Vietnam. However, in 1970, with the invasion of Cambodia uh, and the Kent State State Massacre in uh, the same month, in May 1970, it all kicked off again. And so therefore, in one respect, there was a de-escalation, but also a political uh, backlash on the direction of travel that de-escalation was going to manifest itself in in so many different ways. And so therefore... Nixon is responsible in a number of ways. There's also the fact that his base support, the great silent majority, as he characterised them, were very pro-American involvement. And so therefore, there's a duality in it, in the way in which uh, Nixon's policies, in many respects, are going to inflame the politics of Vietnam because it plays well to his political constituency, but with a larger political and geopolitical fallout, which may 
come from that. So it's it, Nixon is is writ all over this. But he's not the only one, of course, because the policy in Vietnam is one which can be traced back to the middle of the Second World War. So this is not something which is in his complete gift, but he's someone who's mobilised it extremely well for his own political ideas and his own political benefit. What would you say was the key first moment that we need to focus on in order to understand what happened? Well, the key first moment in most retellings of the Watergate scandal is the release of the Pentagon Papers in uh, 1971, isn't it? Those uh, documents compiled by Daniel Ellsberg, for a long time a key defence analyst and pro-war advocate for many years in the RAND Corporation, revealed not just that the USA had been deeply immersed in the politics of Vietnam since the Second World War, but the duplicity over the concealment of American involvement. And it reveals to Americans the nature of the state. There is a secret state that operates in a way which uh, seeks to conceal itself. So the response to the revelation of the Pentagon Papers, the fact that a former senior figure in the administration or the previous administration had been leaking, the idea of the consequences of the leaking of secret papers, irrespective of the public interest, certainly stimulated figures within the Nixon administration. Remember, Richard Nixon doesn't need any excuses to be secret. And so therefore, it was imperative upon him his whole approach to things and the broader diplomatic politics that it that those that were leaking would be cracked down upon, and so therefore we see the attempts to enrol law enforcement, the espionage community, but also figures within the administration to crack down on those who they fear are giving away American secrets. But what they're actually really doing is revealing what America is actually up to, and that's the in many ways the the origin of the specifics of Watergate, because from the Ellisberg attempts to crack down in Ellsberg comes the wider campaign of the plumbers to silence others and to gain political intelligence elsewhere through nefarious activities. Now, those plumbers you mentioned, the White House plumbers, this was a unit set up within the White House, am I right, to specifically crack down on leaking of documents, but also to sort of um, proactively uh, go after those who had done so. Is that right? Yes. Well, this was a job that's supposedly done by the Federal Bureau of Investigation. It's its rare remit to go after those that are regarded as internal enemies. Now, you pay your money, you take your choice on this. Is someone revealing the duplicity, someone revealing the illegality of your own government an internal enemy, or are they someone doing the public good? And this is one of the great confusions which leads to uh, Watergate, ultimately. This idea that those that that you're enemies are the nation's enemies. And this will come through constantly during the period of the plumbers and beyond. Richard Nixon's enemies, he perceives, are America's enemies, but they're his enemies. And Richard Nixon confuses the national interest with his own personal interest. And that's, if you like, that's the intellectual background and the behavioural background to what will become Watergate. The assumption that Nixon is bigger than the government, which he is at the head of, or the state, which he is at the head of. And um, something I think that perhaps maybe gets lost is too strong, but perhaps I think isn't always clear, is that when we talk about Watergate as a name for this scandal, we're referring to a specific building complex. Can can you tell us what happened in this building complex and I suppose how unusual it was? Well, the the building itself or the complex itself was in many respects the representation of inside the Beltway uh, Washington politics because everybody lived there. All the politicians lived there. Indeed, the first burglary of a politician at Watergate was not uh, Larry O'Brien of the Democratic National Committee. It was Rosemary Woods, who had jewellery and other items stolen from the from the location. So it is a political centre, it is a social centre. It's where the, the main American parties and main lobbyists have their offices. So it's, it's the beating heart of the Beltway. 
in so many ways. And with that, and with politics all being about information, it was necessary or deemed necessary by the committee to re-elect the president, infamously and brilliantly referred to as creep, to find out more about what was going on. Now, herein lies one of the biggest enigmas of Watergate. The precise information which was being looked for, or the precise people who were being targeted, remains a matter of contention. The conventional wisdom is it's the head of the Democratic National Committee, which is the head of the Democratic Party through that period, Lawrence O'Brien, who was a former close confidant of the Kennedy clan, and so therefore was someone who plugged in to, you know, a titanic struggle between Nixon and the Kennedys, which had been ongoing uh, since the middle of the 1950s. So there is the, the break-in itself, which takes place in June 1972, ostensibly to ensure that wiretapping and other information gathering uh, technology was working and was dialing up the right people. Uh, that is Lawrence O'Brien, but precisely why? It remains one of the great unsolved, and even up to the present day, there is considerable conjecture as to what information they were looking for. Because as Nixon himself would say, why bug this guy when they should have been bugging, in some respects, uh, George McGovern, who was who was essentially the candidate by June 1972. So that remains an enigma, a strange event for strange reasons, which 50 years ago we're still trying to get to the heart of. I mean... From perhaps a naive or at least 21st century perspective, the breaking into a building by a unit from within the White House feels like stepping over a line in several different ways. Was it unprecedented or how unprecedented should we see this action? Well, it's unprecedented in the the plain stupidity of sending people in to do something like this in some phony baloney black bag operation which would be associated with the Central Intelligence Agency or or various espionage-type people. The gathering of political intelligence is incredibly commonplace, and the usual way in which it's done, and it's still done to the ple- present day, is through agent provocateurs within various campaigns who will go to meetings, who will pick up um, gossip, from from people, then that's the usual type of, of politics that goes on. This went beyond that. And of course, one of the great problems is that no one spotted that the idea of sending uh, five people who had no previous experience of housebreaking into a building with multiple uh, possibilities for being uh, spotted. I mean, the extraordinary thing is that they weren't spotted the first time because this was the second go-round on this particular attempt to burglarise the the DNC. So it's an extraordinary physical event, but the gathering of of campaign intelligence through fair means or foul is not uncommon. But doing something quite so open to being discovered is quite an extraordinary uh, piece of political stupidity, to say the least. And they were discovered, of course, on the 17th of June, 1972. Yeah. The five men were arrested at the Watergate complex. What kind of reaction did this spark in the White House? I'm guessing panic? Well, absolutely. As soon as it was made aware, not only that these individuals could be traced to the White House, but also they had significant incriminating material on their possession which directly linked him to the White House and the committee to re-elect the president and to potential money laundering too, because remember, in amongst all of the paraphernalia they were carrying, with tens of thousands of dollars in sequential numbered bills, every single alarm bell is going on. Why they went in with all of that, why they carried identifying material uh, as to their identities and their addresses, even when they gave false names, which is what happened at the arraignment. So right away there's panic about what the hell to do about this. And therein begins the cover-up. Because when as soon as it was discovered that there was this crazy event taking place, whether or not in the in the build-up to the burglary, the so-called German shepherds, H.R. Bob Haldeman, and John Ehrlichman, the two chiefs of staff to Richard Nixon, had known it, or even Richard Nixon had known 
uh, about it. In the aftermath, the move to find a way to conceal any White House involvement or to get involved in obstruction of justice, because this is the key part of this. The burglary, there could have been a degree of plausible deniability or to say this was a bunch of idiots that were just went got ahead of themselves, were profoundly sorry. They should face the full wrath of the law. They chose to do something instead, which was to build some kind of cover story which would throw off the scent all of the investigative uh, organisations, the FBI, the local police, and all the others into finding out who these people were, where they came from, who they were funded by, and ultimately that direction right back to the President of the United States of America. Why do you think the President and his Chiefs of Staff chose to do all this, to enlist the CIA, to try to throw the FBI off the scent, all of this stuff, rather than the alternative you've just suggested that they might do? Well, the best, the best assessment of this came from Benjamin Bradley, who was the chief political editor of the Washington Post. When he was commenting about Watergate many, many years later, when he said they'd become contemptuous of the process, they didn't think the laws applied to them because they believed that they were above the law. And remember, much later, Richard Nixon was to say, if the president does it, it's not illegal. So this sense of entitlement, this sense of only they have the right to power, and indeed, if you look at the discussion of the Nixon presidency through this period, it's often described as the imperial presidency. It has that element of someone who believes himself to be above everybody else because he believes that he's the only man that should be there. And he confuses, as I said before, the national interest with his own personal interest. And that is a conceit which is potentially catastrophic. It's interesting that you refer to this as Nixon's imperial phase, because in the November of this year, he's re-elected with a significant majority. Um, But all the while, there are a couple of sort of threads that are unravelling. And I thought we should sort of explore those in turn. One is that the men who had been jailed for this burglary, many of them were deeply unhappy for the way they had been treated. Can you talk us through how they were treated and what they did about it? Well, part of the early conspiracy was providing support, at least legal support for the the individuals, the Cuban Cuban exiles, uh, Howard uh, Hunt... G. Gordon Liddy uh, and Bernard Barker uh, as the, the the three members of the committee to re-elect the president. They were given lots of support. They were given lots of legal advice. They were also told that they were going to be set up and wouldn't have to worry in the future uh, about their circumstances. However, pretty soon, after it was really very much the case that the indictments would stop at them, the White House started to lose interest in managing it, and they felt as though they, they were being hung out to dry. The cover-up had worked. Lots of people had perjured themselves, and that seemed to be the end of it, that the indictments which were going to go forward and the ultimate uh, uh, sentencing which was going to take place would all stop at the burglars and the, the creep employees who were originally uh, identified in the prosecutions. However... It became immediately apparent, particularly from Howard Hunt, who had been really the... I don't want to use the word genius behind this particular endeavour, because as it's unravelled so much, I think genius is probably the inappropriate terminology for it. He felt as though he had leverage. He wanted more. He wanted more money. He wanted more uh, support from the political uh, leadership of the Republican Party, and particularly the Nixon administration. And he had them over a barrel because he didn't just know about Watergate. He knew about everything else, most notably in 1971, the burglarization of Daniel Ellsberg's psychiatrist's office in Los Angeles and the daft campaign uh, around that. He knew all the secrets. And so therefore he felt as though he had some leverage and unfinished business. And it was also a bit of an attack of of conscience on another one of the burglars, uh, uh, James McCourt, in that he felt as though the story should be told 
irrespective of the consequences. And he made a he made a particular show of it. He said, I'm going to reveal it at the auspicious time, which turned out to be just before sentencing. And that those two events, more than anything else, are going to accelerate the crisis because, first of all, they've got to find more ways to hush hunt, hunt and they've also got to cope with the fact that McCord is going to blab to anyone who wants to hear it. And that is damage control catastrophe city and there's another set of players we should introduce at this point which is the journalists who were investigating the story how did they first get wind of what happened and i suppose when did they their work become key well it's really interesting in the formative stage of this the 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 pot was kept boiling if you like by journalists because you keep bringing up things which are seemingly uh, absurd in terms of the whole pattern of things. So, for instance, uh, one of the first things that was discovered was that a number of the burglars were giving aliases at the arraignment. I thought, that's a bit strange. Then it was discovered that in the belongings which were um, impounded by the police following the uh, arrests, there was a whole series of references to phone numbers in the White House and individuals in the White House, and so therefore there's there's that line to follow. There is the various money transactions, and of course, one of the most celebrated dimensions to this is the supposed follow the money di- uh, uh, direction from uh, Deep Throat or Mark Feld, the deputy of the Federal Bureau of Investigation, who was the the deep contact for Bob Woodward. So journalists were really crucial in keeping this story alive, most notably, of course, Bob Woodward and Carol Bernstein of the Washington Post. But all the other senior journalists, ultimately uh, Dick Anderson uh, of the New York Times, amongst many others, they kept asking the questions. They kept creating all these uh, loose ends, which didn't seem to tie up. But if you kind of join them together, they're all pointing towards the White House. And they kept the story going when there was relative indifference to it until there was a body of work and a momentum behind it moving to the political power basis of the time, which is Capitol Hill and the Special Prosecutor's Office too. And in January 1973, some of the men involved in this pled guilty And this trial process is extraordinary because one of the things that comes out of it is the fact that John Dean, I think it was, felt that he thought some of his conversations had been recorded. Is that right? Yeah, well, uh, as part of the House of Representatives Watergate Committee, as it became under uh, Sam Irvin, they start to um, talk to potential witnesses. And one of the key witnesses mainly because he was just about to be dropped into it by the Nixon administration, was John Dean III. And he is the most intimate figure when it comes to the whole direction of the uh, the Watergate campaign, if you like, of damage limitation. Now, he went into a number of conversations with uh, Richard Nixon, most notably uh, the so-called cancer close to the presidency uh, conversation, in uh, 1973 and he seemed to get the impression that he was being led through a conversation so that he could get specific answers or offer himself up effectively as a man responsible for so much and he recounts this to the Irvin committee as the idea that he thought he was being recorded and of course lo and behold he was he was being recorded because every conversation really from 1971 onwards in the White House is being recorded for the for the personal testimony of President Richard Milhouse Nixon. And therein lies the seed of so much catastrophe to follow. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. The second half of the 20th century in the USA is impossible to think about without Richard Nixon. There may well be other figures who people look upon with greater degree of respect, affection and reverence, but there's no doubting Richard Nixon's imprint. Time flies. We blinked and 2024 is halfway over. What's something you've accomplished this year that you're proud of? Maybe you made it out of bed and to work every day. Or maybe you started shedding some old habits that were weighing you down. 
But even when you're making progress, life can feel like it's moving too fast. We can't slow time down, but we can give you a moment every week to hit pause, set intentions, and reset. Therapy is a guaranteed time to check in on how you're feeling, what you want to do more of, and what you want to change. Otherwise, it's easy to keep going through the motions without getting what you want out of life. BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone, or video call. You can start the sign-up process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Take a moment with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Now, these secret recordings. Uh, if you tell this story backwards, it's one of those things that almost seems to make sense like you've got this president and he's involved in this lead these kind of um bad dealings i suppose but if you tell the story the right way around it seems extraordinary that that there's this president who is recording every conversation he has in the white house um why was this and um was there any precedent for this happening well, the idea of of mimeographing, recording, or collating uh, the utterances of presidents is not unusual, but usually it's official documentation. Usually, it is stuff which is in the public domain, and any other conversations are conducted in private with only a relatively limited uh, recording of them, and that's generally paper recording. It's just it's just notes. There had been precedent because. Uh, Nixon's predecessor, Lyndon Johnson, had a primitive form of recording system in the White House, which recorded many of his conversations, and indeed they are now, in the large part, in the public domain from that. However, Nixon decided, partly out of the fact that he believed that he was constantly being misreported and misinterpreted, wanted to set the record straight, And also, of course, he was a hubristic egotist. He loved the idea of all of his utterances being saved for posterity so that people could see how much of a genius he was. Uh, So there's there's a whole raft of reasons why why Nixon's unique recording system... You can see why 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 it's going to be something that would appeal to him because he can always correct the record especially if you have an enemies list as long as Richard Nixon had, which, of course, was one of the great secrets of Nixon. They had a list which was so long he had to keep it in a book. Uh, And as Gerald Ford famously said, if you've got so many enemies that you have to write them down, you've got too many enemies. And so, therefore, it's very much part and character of Richard Nixon that he wants to... Because he always felt as though he was being uh, misunderstood. He always felt that the, the press were the enemies. And he also always wanted to get back at those that he felt wronged him. He had such a grievance uh, culture about him that he, that he did that. Of course, it is an accident waiting to happen. As soon as it was discovered that the President of the United States is compiling all of his recorded conversations, that is a huge debate as to whether or not this is covered by executive privilege or because the president is a public servant, this is now in the domain of the public itself. 
And the fact these recordings existed came to light in the trials of the burglars. Is that is that right? No, it comes to light in the Irvine Committee proceedings where Alexander Butterfield, who is one of the chief assistants to, to the president, is responsible. He's one of the very few people who know about the recording system. Butterfield had two jobs. The first was to keep people away from Richard Nixon at White House events because he didn't like talking to people. The second uh, was to take care of the recording uh, material. Uh, Butterfield has has written one of the best uh, memoirs on the Nixon presidency. It's called Last of the President's Men. It was written with Bob Woodward, of all people, uh, from the Washington Post. And he was... He was asked about it in preliminary inquiries about, you know, John Dean said that he felt he was being recorded, to which Butterfield, having to make a decision, said, yes, that's because there's a recording system in the White House. Now, this is not public knowledge. And there's a a degree of scepticism as to whether or not, if he was to go into public uh, discussions with the Irvine Committee, that he could reveal it or not. He decides he has to reveal it, and that is the catalyst. So really from uh, the early spring of 1973 onwards, this is the big issue. It's going to be over who gets access to the tapes, on what terms, and what can be revealed from them. So can we see the next phase of this story as being almost like a cat-and-mouse game between the president and his administration and the various parties trying to get hold of these tapes? Absolutely. It is, in many respects, it is the the core of the latter stage of the Watergate scandal. Over ownership of the tapes, over possession of the tapes, use of the tapes, the transcription of the tapes, and the type of tapes that can be revealed. And this is what's going to gum it up totally, because it's not just that the tapes, that it's the existence of the tapes all of the president's men and Nixon knows that what's on the tapes is catastrophic to the, the administration because they are planning a series of crimes. They are planning obstruction of justice. They are planning bribery. They are planning, uh, you know, perjury. They are planning all sorts of clear, clear forms of criminality in the full view and the full, uh, you know, understanding uh, of their being recorded. So they are, there are multiple dangers in these tapes uh, across the board. A question that occurs to me about this seeming contradiction is that why didn't they stop recording conversations? If they knew there was a chance these tapes could be released, or did they just assume that they would never be released? I think that's always been the assumption, that these could be covered by executive privilege, because there had been precedent for this, that internal White House discussions between advisors, irrespective of what they are, are covered by executive privilege. Now, Richard Nixon was the vice president under Dwight D. Eisenhower, And there was a controversy over the advice that Eisenhower was being given in the early 1950s when he was president uh, over a number of issues. And what Eisenhower was able to do was successfully plead executive privilege over these discussions. And Nixon, not uh, surprisingly, and probably um, in many respects, quite correctly assumed in this particular case that that would a similar privilege would be extended to his confidential material? Because it's, there is a world where you don't want people to know your conversations when it comes to national security, when it comes to some very sensitive issues, which go across the, the desk of all senior politicians, that you don't want to, to reveal or you don't have to be forced to reveal some of these discussions. But of course... These are democratic states. Britain is a democratic nation. Our public officials are meant to be transparent, irrespective of what they do. And those boundaries where they exist are negotiated because people will know that there is a there is a there is a boundary. However, in this case, of course, there's no national security boundary. This is personal politics 
covering the presidential election and not vital national security. And again, I go back to this concept. The assumption that Richard Nixon is the national security, and so therefore everything covering Richard Nixon should be executive privilege, that's the conceit. That's the, if you like, the, the hubris of the administration, that assumption. Everything that he says is presidential because he's a president. That is that that will be that's a contentious assumption, and of course it conceals a multitude of potential sins as well. While this cat and mouse game is being played out, there's another sort of looming factor that we should talk about, which is the the sort of spectre of impeachment. Um, at what point did this become a significant factor in this story? Well, according to Thomas Tip O'Neill, who is most, the most senior Democratic politician in the House of Representatives by the start of 1973, he has used the I word as early as January or February 1973 because he is hearing all sorts of strange information about extortion from the Nixon administration. I must remember, strangely enough, one of the reasons why they go so hard on concealing Watergate is that there's actually worse things out there in terms of potential presidential criminality, particularly over campaign funding. Because there's going to be a whole series of uh, of captains of industry and senior figures in finance who are going to find themselves in serious trouble about the way in which they exploited for Nixon's benefit loopholes in campaign finance law. And indeed, many will go to jail off the back of it. So there's there's an indicator from from O'Neill that impeachment may well be an issue. However, I can't underestimate in the context of this time how reluctant American politicians, even if they believed Nixon was guilty, would go down the road of an impeachment process which requires the House of Representatives and the US Senate being involved in a drawn-out political battle and trial only once before for a president had there been an impeachment process, and that was uh, Andrew Johnson in the late 1860s. And so therefore there was tremendous reluctance to bring the, the I-word into the public domain. However, as the scandal begins to roll out and the increasing awareness of the deep criminality involved in it, there is... An, there is an irresistible momentum towards impeachment. So serious that Nixon cannot rely on his usual political allies to get him out of this. And this is where it becomes absolutely toxic for Richard Nixon in the latter stages when when impeachment is effectively imminent in the late summer of 1974. I wanted to talk about um, the... Uh, impression that the public had of what was going on. We've talked about the work of reporters for newspapers. Um, was the television and also an important part of this story? This is the this is the show that everybody is watching. This is prime time. All of the usual soaps, all of the usual programs are wiped off the air. Can you imagine that today? That people are watching hours and hours and hours of largely very boring material coming from a committee of the House of Representatives, but so unique. And of course, it's a true television moment because the technology is there. The satellite feeds are there. The, the ability to go live is there. Was it that the TV was broadcasting live from the court cases? Is that right? They, were, they, they couldn't, of course, go inside the courtrooms. This is from the House of Representatives hearings, the Irvine Committee, which is a real game in town. Although there's, there's two parallel things going on. There is the uh, grand jury, which is a very unique part of the American process of indictment and development of indictments for individual criminal cases, because remember, these things are ongoing. And there's also the Irvine Committee, which is the House of Representatives, and they are talking to each other. What should have just been, you know, a criminal prosecution versus a political scandal, the thing which is unique about Watergate is that they both collide and they both become part of the same process. So anything which has been revealed in the grand jury is immediately getting sent up the hill 
to 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 the House of Representatives. So you've got this extraordinary every side of the political process and the judicial process is colliding and there is the phenomenon of live TV to bring it to to everybody so you're you're scooting from reporters outside the courtroom right into the arena in the House of Representatives true true theatre in a political sense for those of us who love political theatre Um, I wanted to talk about the events specifically of the 20th of October 1973, which is the day that's become known as the, I think I'm right in saying, the Saturday Night Massacre, is that right? Saturday Night Massacre, yes. What happened and how important was this moment? For many, it is the tipping point in terms of impeachment. Now, what is actually going on is, right at the very start of the, what Richard Nixon called the Watergate thing, was a commitment to a special prosecutor who would look at all of the circumstances around the break-in and those involved in it. Appointed to that role was a man by the name of Archibald Cox, who was a senior jurist, uh, a professor of labour law, of all things, at uh, Harvard. But he was also politically well-connected because he had been a senior official under the Kennedy administration. And he was charged with responsibility of getting to the the heart of the issue, and to the heart of the issue for him, was the tapes. Richard Nixon already had a couple of, of problems with Cox. Both of them were John F. Kennedy and Edward Kennedy in many respects. And so therefore he believed he was not, he was not an independent special prosecutor. And when he started to ask for the tapes and then demand the tapes... He loses his rag, effectively, over it and wants to close it down. And he feels by October 1973 that he has to move in to close the special prosecutor's office down. And so therefore he asks his attorney general, Elliot Richardson, to end the special prosecutor's office. Richardson refuses. His second-in-command... Ruckel's house is asked the same question, and he refuses. The third in the chain of command is a man by the name of Robert Bork, and he eventually sacks Cox. However, he only is able to sack Archibald Cox and not end the role of the special prosecutors, because such is the outrage over the event, so-called Saturday Night Massacre, that Nixon is forced to retain the special prosecutor's office and a new special prosecutor will come come on board who's actually even more meticulous. They should have stuck with Cox, strangely enough, because this would be the, the... The Saturday Night Massacre was intended to end the investigation, but it actually ends up inflaming it with tens of thousands of Americans sending in telegrams, which for younger listeners is text messages, but actually on paper uh, from back in the day. I know this, even in the 1970s, telegrams seem to be somewhat redundant, but Americans love them apparently. So we have this this firestorm forming what was an effective attempt to overthrow the judiciary of the United States for political reasons. If, that, if you want a simple explanation of what happens at the Saturday Night Massacre, it was an attempt by the presidency to basically become a sovereign by overruling the judicial branch of the administration. And that is something in the American separation of powers is regarded as unacceptable, although it's often been tried. So as we head into 1974, which is the year in which Nixon would eventually resign in that August, is it fair to say that those eight months were sort of the culmination of the various pressures and forces we've outlined? Public outrage, the trials, the impeachment spectre looming over everything, the the tapes potentially being released. Can we see it in those terms? Well, absolutely. It is... It's a, a period in time through to August 1974 of absolute torture. And indeed, most of the biographers of Nixon and of the period emphasise the sheer, uh, if you like, inertia 
of the political system, the way in which the whole process has been has effectively been consumed. America's ability to govern itself is effectively non-existent for the best part of a year. And so therefore and part of that is down to the fact that you we have in Richard Nixon a basically incapacitated president whose only battle at that particular time is trying to ensure that the secrets which are held within the tapes are kept from the public as much as possible. And he is literally going to go down in flames uh, in in terms of defending uh, his right to the tapes, on the one hand as a president, but also the personally incriminating nature of the evidence. Because the impeachment is a real possibility. The possibility is also of criminal prosecutions as soon as he comes out of office because his term in office will expire in 1976, uh, start of 1977. That's well within the statute of limitations. And also the credibility of the American political process is up for grabs. So it's basically every all the marbles are being played for and it's no surprise, therefore, that the intensity of it is so overwhelming that it brings the entire political system to a grinding halt. Mm-hmm. And as we've talked about um, in that August, Nixon finally resigns before he can be impeached. Um, what awaited him after his presidency and to what extent was he able to salvage some of his reputation? Everybody else went to jail apart from Dick Nixon. That's the simplest summation. Richard Nixon was able to leverage his position as the President of the United States to escape the justice which others were forced to accept. So in one respect, he gets away kind of scot-free. However, of course, he's forced to resign. The first president forced to resign in that particular uh, manner. Total disgrace as well, at least initially. He goes into a period of semi-exile, although he appears a couple of years later when David Frost waves a, la- a large amount of money in front of him uh, to do some interviews. Uh, and he seeks to to correct the record as he sees it. And, of course, it's one of the most monumental, uh, uh, you know, debates of all time and interviews of all time. So monumental, of course, it's, there's been a movie made out of it with Frank Langella and Michael Sheen. So you have that attempt. And then you have this shadow world of Richard Nixon, who's he's always around He's always about. He's in semi-permanent exile in Yorba Linda, California, where the Nixon Library is now to be found. But he's still someone who people will make tracks to hear what he has to say. Irrespective of what you think about Richard Nixon, I have a particularly low opinion of him, to, to, to be absolutely frank. His, his expertise and knowledge, particularly in international affairs, is, was not to be not to be sniffed at or missed. But he could never be acknowledged. He was always the exile, right up until the day he died. But of course, he's had a cultural afterlife as well. He is a permanent fixture of the demonology of American political life. There are still those who worship him in various ways. There are many of those who were part of the Trump administration who cut their political teeth as political operatives during the Watergate period. So in terms of of the way in which some think about him, there are those who who think, well, he's basically been misrepresented. But his reputation will never recover because he resigns in disgrace. And what of the America he left behind? Should we see his presidency and the events we've been talking about as one of the key things that defined America in the second half of the 20th century? The second half of the 20th century in the USA is impossible to think about without Richard Nixon. There may well be other figures who people look upon with greater degree of respect, affection and reverence, but there's no doubting Richard Nixon's imprint on American public policy, on American party politics, on international affairs, both good and bad. So there's a number of ways in which Nixon and Watergate and the fear of Watergate has shaped politics, but also the lost currency of Watergate too, because, of course, we've had many attempts at impeachment since. 
Uh, and it's, it's you know, American politicians don't seem to have too much of a cringe when it comes to mentioning the I word anymore, which is in dramatic contrast to politicians, even those that were enemies of Nixon, for whom it was the love that dare not speak its name. So in a way, it introduced the idea of impeachment into mainstream politics, but took away some of the weight of that, so it became more of a common thing. Well, absolutely. You only have to look at what's happened over the last 20 to 25 years, where there's been multiple uh, attempts at at impeachment, all of which never really had any chance of succeeding. It has undermined in some respects, but it's also shown just how polarised and how problematic some aspects of the American polity has become. That, that, That high crimes and misdemeanors are now, in some respects, more commonplace, but go unpunished. And that's the great danger, that once you remove the sting from impeachment, politicians feel as as though they can get away with anything. And that is hazardous for every political system, no matter where it is. Finally, how would you like listeners to think about Watergate and its place in American history? I think they should go back to it constantly to remind themselves of the necessity for politicians to be held accountable and not feel as though they're above the law. I think that's a crucial civics lesson. Also, from from my personal point of view, it is the defining political moment of my sort of early life because the first thing I remember politically was Nixon leaving the White House. I didn't know why he was leaving the White House, all I saw, he was leaving in a big green Sea King helicopter and as a, as a what was it then, as an eight-year-old. That was the most thrilling thing, but it's stuck with me ever since. Ever since, and so therefore it's crucial. It's crucial that people have a sense that just as much as they should respect politicians, just as much as they should trust um, politicians, there is a boundary. Because if there's an assumption that people are going to be completely and utterly uh, acquiescent in the belief that politicians always act in the public interest, you're going to get a Watergate scandal coming around the corner as sure as night follows day. That was Clifford Williamson, lecturer in modern British and American history at Bath Spa University. You can read more from Clifford on the Watergate scandal and its legacy in the July issue of BBC History magazine, which is on sale now. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Brittany College.